Well, hello, and welcome to this edition of the Whitfield Report. I am your host, Sam Whitfield. Joining me for this episode is uh, Joshua Johnson, who uh, people have joked with me about this before, but uh, people have joked that I should probably just make him my co-host at this point because uh, I have him on so much, um, although I have had a couple of of uh, guests in, in between, but um, the reason why I'm having him on the show this week, it was kind of impromptu. Uh, many of you guys will remember uh, back in either December, I think it was December or early January, we were talking about Syria back then and uh, Michelle uh, Al-Assad and why it wasn't why it wouldn't behoove us to intervene in Syria like uh, Hillary Clinton wanted. And uh, this was one of the reasons why Donald Trump appealed to us both. And, uh, well, if you've been paying attention to the news for uh, the last two or three days or so, then you probably know that the, uh, you know, that the, ship on us staying out of Syria has pretty much uh, sailed already. It's it's gone. Uh, you know, we haven't taken full military action in Syria, but it's kind of looking like we're going to. So uh, some people on Twitter and people who know me personally actually asked me to kind of follow up on that conversation with Josh. So uh Without further ado, uh, Joshua Johnson welcomes to the program, and uh, boy, it's been a crazy week uh, for us at American Watchmen. Uh, I think every week's kind of crazy, but yeah, we can we can go ahead and say this one. This one this one was a bit more of a of a, a volatile week, I would yeah. say. Emotions have run high on this issue from from all sides. I think. Yeah. Um, I, I will say, too, that our board is kind of split, uh, well, not, well, not like split down the middle, but kind of split um, in terms of Sierra's reaction, which we can talk about here, too. But I think uh, just kind of getting out of the bat, the fact that no one's starting to, you know, break up the group or whatever, I think on the positive side does kind of show that we're sticking into our initial mission of having diverse viewpoints, you know, at American Watchmen. Uh, with that being said, well, just give me your whole spiel on uh, Syria and what's kind of happened within the last 48 hours. You're the guest, so uh, just feel free to kind of cut loose and give your spiel. Well, at this point, it wouldn't be 48 hours anymore. I think it's been three days now. But... Um... Pretty much uh, in the United States, and I think we maybe discussed this on your show before, but in the United States, the mainstream media toes the United States foreign policy establishment's line on virtually every issue, regardless of the channel. Uh, that was on full display uh, the night launched his uh, Trump launched the strike on Syria because uh, MSNBC and all these outlets that usually hate Trump, all of them were singing his praises. There was nobody disagreeing with him. And, uh, and you may notice I already kind of cut just straight to the strike. Uh, I'm assuming most of our listeners know the background and the alleged reason for why we 
uh, launched the strike on Syria. Uh, I will tell you, which I which I do want to cover here in a sec, but just you know, continue on with what you were, uh, you know, at, said. saying since since the strike happened. Since the strike happened, you mean you want me to yeah. refer to that? Yeah. Since then, uh, Trump's base, uh, myself included, have split uh, down the middle, some would say, uh, between those who are uh, against the intervention and those that are willing to go along with it. And I th- I hope we can explain some more of this later, because almost all of the reasons I have heard for why the intervention was just do not add up when you look at the historical uh, record of the United States and... Uh, what those kind of policies of intervention have resulted in in the past and this uh, so, so this supposed tough guy stance that Trump is allegedly taking to uh, to send a signal to China and Russia and North Korea it just doesn't add up, and I hope we can get into that more a little bit later. I guess that said, uh, if you asked a bit of an open-ended question there. Uh, is there anything specific, I suppose, you would like me to discuss with you, you and your well, I'll just kind of ask you the same question people have asked me. And granted, these are people who, who are kind of, uh, you know, I guess for the for intervention or I guess, you know, felt that the strike was just. I want to make one thing clear, and I, 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 I'm pretty sure I can kind of count you in on this. Um, one thing that has kind of been bugging me is the fact that people have asked me, uh oh so you don't want to intervene in syria okay so you're okay with uh you know dead children with uh you know innocents being gassed and dead children being gassed and uh you know no not at all like no one's denying that the gassing uh took place it is a horrible thing and you know i i guess here is what I would here here is what I would say to people who ask you that. Do you not care about children who are being starved to death in Yemen with our uh, backing? Because in Yemen, the thing the, the things that you ha- see happening to children in Syria are happening in Yemen as well, and sometimes in cases that are even worse. And if you don't believe me, just look up the uh, war in Yemen right now. We are funding and arming Saudi Arabia. Well, they go in and they starve Yemeni children to death. And if you look this up, and I will, uh, I will provide you a link. You can tweet afterwards to a story Al Jazeera did on this. Uh, if if you look up the situation in Yemen, the pictures of the children being starved over there by Saudi forces look worse than Holocaust pictures. They look like walking uh, skeletons. And and this is virtually unreported in the United States's media. Like I said. Uh, earlier, the media here only tows Washington's the the foreign policy establishment's line, and so because corporate America has nothing to gain from intervening to stop the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, you just don't hear about it. Instead, you hear about the situation in Syria, where our foreign policy st- establishment desperately wants to go in and overthrow Assad, uh, because he has more or less not been a puppet for Washington. And uh, he has not been a puppet for Wall Street or the military industrial complex. And because, you know, there are a lot of corporate interests that want to go into Syria so that they can take over. And it really is an imperialist policy almost because what you see, and I, I commented on this in my column the other night, is that Washington's foreign policy establishment isn't interested in helping 
people who are suffering in other countries. They're interested in going in and dominating and running other countries, picking their leaders and picking the kind of policies they have. I discussed earlier today that in Syria, for example, the Assad government has banned GMOs, which has angered Wall Street. The Assad government has refused to take any uh, money or any debt from the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank, which are, again, both tools of Wall Street and of Washington. And when you take debt, as you know, the debtor is slave to the lender. And oftentimes what happens is that if a country takes money from the International Monetary Fund or the uh, World Bank, they end up being forced to adopt the kind of policies that Washington would prefer they adopt, regardless of what their own people want or regardless of what is best for their own people. And, uh, and, and if you don't believe me, you can look up virtually any government in the world that does not play ball with the IMF or the World Bank. Washington hates. They, that's part of the reason they were so hell-bent against Hugo Chavez and the Kirchners, uh, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela and the Kirchners in uh, Argentina. Uh, another thing is that uh, Syria under Assad has dropped the dollar as a reserve currency. Uh, that is what partially led to the Iraq War. Uh, Saddam Hussein dropped the dollar and we invaded shortly afterwards. And my point here is that going into Syria, intervening in Syria and getting rid of Assad has nothing to do with helping the children that you see suffering on television. Because if we go over there, those children will die just like the children in Iraq died. There are at least 1 million people. That's the highest estimate. Uh, I can't tell you what the lowest is off the top of my head, but the highest estimate is that 1 million people died in the Iraq war, many of them innocent women and children and civilians. And if we go into Syria, those innocent children you saw in the chemical attack will die. It's not about helping them. The reason Washington wants to go in is so that they can force regime change and get a government that plays ball with Wall Street and does what the foreign policy establishment in America wants them to do about replacing Assad with a puppet, so to speak. Okay, playing devil's advocate again now. But Josh, Assad is an asshole who kills kids. Now, okay, so that's what some people have said. So is so that leads me to the next question: Is Assad a good guy or a bad guy, or what? Who the hell? I mean, is Assad basically? What? Well, that's, that, that's, a, that's a tricky – you've asked me two questions, I guess, there. Uh, first, yeah. I, I'd like to just say as to whether or not he is good or bad. Uh, I never said, you know, in my little, my little rant there that he was necessarily a good guy. I just said that because his government has refused to be a puppet to Washington and because he has refused to play ball with uh, Wall Street and their foreign policy agenda with the IMF or the World Bank, he has, had, he has put a target on his back, and they want to go in and prop up a imperial colonial government that uh, does their wishes, so to speak. Um, I never said that he was necessarily good. I don't think anybody denies that Syria is a uh, dictatorship by our standards. You know, uh, and this now going into your second question, sort of who is uh, Bashar al-Assad? Um, he inherited the, fa- the presidency from his father, Hafez al-Assad, who took power in a military coup in the 1970s. And uh, he has won re-election, I think. I think he's done it four or five times now. Uh, Obviously, there is a a state-approved opposition party, and he wins every time. Uh, You know, not not too surprising, not a free and fair election. But now going back to your your previous point again, whether or not he's good or bad, um, he 
is not good, but you know, this, and this kind of goes into the election as well, but he is the lesser of two evils in the ongoing conflict right now. Right. And more generally speaking throughout the Middle East as a whole, Assad is one of the more benign, uh, you know, regimes, almost like Hosni Mubarak. You know, this is not a man who uh, is running, you know, Hitler style concentration camps. And, you know, during peacetime, for example, Saddam Hussein uh, used mustard gas on uh, his own people uh, during a time of peace. Uh, there is no proof that Assad has used chemical weapons in Syria. Yet, uh, the, in, two, in the Gouda incident in 2013, the United Nations actually found to the contrary that the rebels were responsible for that incident as a false flag operation. Uh, I maintain and believe that the incident we saw in Idlib province a few days ago was a false flag operation because it made virtually no sense for Assad to do that after a major diplomatic victory. Right. You, you wrote a very good uh, article on the American Watchmen, uh, which I actually cited in my article today at the, at the beginning. Uh, my article hasn't been published yet, but, but it will after this uh, podcast is over. Um, I mean, so I'm, I'm asking you a lot of devil's advocate questions. I, I mean, I think because I think you and I, you know, mainly, mainly agree. I before mean, we, before, before we move on to your, your next one here that you're going to, to just give you a blunt answer, good or bad on Assad. Um, I would say, and I said this on your show too, before, uh, I remember you said that some people had a double take that I support, uh, president Assad and his ongoing war in Syria and that I support the Syrian government. And the reason I do is because he protects Syrian Christians and he protects religious minorities. And, you know, say what you will, war crimes have been committed by both sides in this war. There is there is no good guy to root for in the Syrian civil war, but there is a side that I would prefer would win and I would prefer that be uh, secular Syria and Bashar al-Assad where Christians and religious minorities still have their rights maintained, as you were saying, though. Yeah, no, I, I would... I would have to to agree. I mean, look, I I don't think I don't think Bashar uh, or Bashar al-Assad is necessarily a uh, a good guy per se. But uh, you know this this notion basically that uh, Bashar is is uh, literally Hitler uh, and that we need to stop him. I think you know. All I would say is that remains be, to be seen uh, as far as I can tell. Um, and that's that's the, the thing is, if the way I see it, and this is just me being pragmatic, if we had to go out and stop every single dictator who was doing horrible things to their people, well, we would be world place first of all and and secondly we we would just we would just be out at war all all the time it's it's not pragmatic for us to to keep on doing this but but we have and, and like you said there keep on doing this but we have been doing both of those things to an extent i think it's interesting you use the word dictator and i would like to point out if and you've probably noticed this, do you ever notice the weight that word carries in the United States mainstream media? There are leaders, for example, such as in Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych. Uh, he was democratically elected. The United Nations found that the 2010 election in Ukraine, Yanukovych was elected in a free and fair election. 
Uh, that said, there was evidence of corruption. Obviously, after he left, we found that gigantic mansion and stuff like that. Uh, but he was elected in a free and fair election. By definition, he's not a dictator. But when it came time for him to go so that NATO and the, so that the European Union and so that Wall Street could go and impose their own puppet government in Ukraine, suddenly he was a dictator. And, and, and in Syria, they don't even refer to Assad as the president hardly anymore. They use the word dictator all the time. And if you go out and you talk to the average American, they are told the word dictator as if every our media will once you've been labeled a dictator by our media in the United States, it means that the U.S. government's coming after your ass. And uh, not necessarily because you're a dictator, like like the terms usage would have you believe. Well, because you're not doing what they want you to. And to that point, like I said, Saudi Arabia is a dictatorship. We are arming them and financing them in Yemen. Bahrain during the uh, Arab Spring in, two, in 2011, you saw media coverage all over of uh, the, Lib- the Libyan government uh, resisting the protesters and of the Syrian government and of Hosni Mubarak's government. But you saw no coverage at all of Bahrain. In fact, I bet, did you even hear about Bahrain until I mentioned it to you just now, Sam. Do you remember Bahrain ever coming up at all in any news report about uh, the 2011 Arab Spring? Mm, like, I think, like, if if I'm being honest, like, I, I have to say that I think maybe, like, it crossed my, like, mind once. Like, maybe I saw something once on, like, some iPhone app or something. But, like, honestly, that's but on it. CNN- on CNN, BBC, CNN, though, Bahrain was never mentioned. The reason why is because Bahrain is a Gulf state like Saudi Arabia. There were mass protests against the dictatorial Salafist monarchy there. And in Bahrain, the sniper, the military actually deployed snipers onto the roof and they shot at innocent women and children protesting the government. They shot protesters dead in the streets, uh, in their heads, on live uh, television. Uh, this, this television, of course, being only this kind of stuff you'd see in the Arab world, it was never, they never dared broadcast it on uh, Western mainstream media, because if they did, that would, uh, make Americans outraged and they would demand that something be done about Bahrain. But the reason nothing was done is because Bahrain plays by Washington's textbook. You know, they give us oil and we let them do whatever the hell they want. And they're a dictatorship. My point of course here being in, in this whole little rant on the word dictatorship is that, the United States does not care, uh, contrary to the public image that we put out, the United States does not care if other countries are free, only if other countries are and, – and when I say the United States, I'm, I'm speaking specifically about Washington, D.C. and the foreign policy establishment, uh, not about the American people necessarily. Uh, the United States foreign policy establishment doesn't care if the rest of the world is free. They care about having loyal little puppets that do what they are told. You're right. Well, and I've I've also noticed too. I alluded to I I kind of alluded to this a few minute, minutes ago, but I've also noticed that besides uh, the word dictator being heavily used, I've noticed that uh, people and the media they always like to conflate to conflate dictators immediately to Adolf to Adolf Hitler. Like uh, Assad, you know, he, oh my God, he gassed his, you know, own people. It's it's just, 
it's like Nazi Germany and Hitler all over again, or you know, or same with same with Saddam. Dictators, you know? dictators tend to fall into one or two category, one of two categories. Uh, Hitler and Saddam Hussein fall into the former category, uh, which is the the first category, which is an expansionist dictator who often invades countries neighboring him. Or uh, you know, Hitler tried to take over the world, and Saddam uh, made the uh, fatal mistake of invading Kuwait. Um, those dictators usually don't tend to last very long because, you know, when you're, when you go and invade your neighbors all the time, especially if you're invading a U.S. puppet, uh, a U.S. puppet like the Kuwaiti government, uh, Kuwait being a Gulf state again, like Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, uh, as Saddam did, you're putting a target on your back and, uh, actually incur the wrath of the international community. The second type of dictator is, uh, like Stalin or, um... And we could we could go with Gaddafi for the period after uh, Reagan's bombing of his uh, of his palace or whatever, um, where they understand that it is in their own best self interest to only oppress people within their own borders because when they go outside of their borders they start to cause problems. Uh, to the point of Reagan bombing Gaddafi, though that is, and I've already seen some people try comparing what Trump did in Syria to what Reagan did with Gaddafi. Those are two non comparable events. Because Gaddafi had already been sponsoring terrorists who were killing Americans and who were targeting American airlines and killing Americans at the Olympics and so on and so forth. Right. Assad in Syria hurt a single American. There is no intention uh, to go after America. Uh, it, it's not a comparable event. Well, it's also important to know that President Reagan was not a neocon foreign policy president either like you said he 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 went after terrorists who who mainly were uh you know harming u.s citizens as well um you know especially when jimmy carter would not it's a fair point but i i would also say and and this i think going into why did trump do this is every united states president uh, almost every United States president, I'll say that Nixon was an exception, not entirely, and, and we can go into why. But almost every foreign uh, policy, I mean, every president since 1959 has been dominated by this corporate military-industrial complex foreign policy that does not act in the best interest of our country or the American people, but in the best interest of a few elite special interests. Uh, to Reagan's point, why I would say that even though, you know, good decision on what he did with Gaddafi. Uh, what did Reagan do in Latin America? You are probably not upper, uh, familiar with Operation Condor, uh, but what Operation Condor... I am, I am a little bit. That That's that's what happened in Grenada, right? Uh, no, I don't, I don't quite think so. Operation Condor was not a U.S. military operation. It, oh. was, a, uh, it was a Latin American military operation that was masterminded by Uruguayan President Stroessner, uh, who was a military dictator who was in power from like the 50s until 1991 when he finally killed... No, he was removed in a coup. But um, Operation Condor was this international uh, secret service kind of intelligence operation conducted by the right-wing military dictatorships of uh, Uruguay, Chile, Argentina... And I think Brazil for a little bit was involved. I haven't studied this for a while, so my memory is a bit hazy. 
But what Operation Condor was, they targeted uh, left-wing figures, activists, uh, journalists throughout not only their own countries, but also the world. Um, and the United States helped in this uh, under Reagan, and, uh, and it did start much earlier than that. I believe Operation Condor actually got it started in the late 60s and early 70s, but Reagan continued on with supporting it. And my point in mentioning all this is that since 1959, you know, what, what benefit was there to the United States or to the average American person in uh, having uh, our intelligence services cooperate with these dictators in Latin America in oppressing their own people? And now don't get me wrong. There was a, uh, you know, that was the Cold War. Communism was our enemy. But a lot of the times the people that were being targeted by Operation Condor weren't even necessarily... Uh, communist revolutionaries. They were just going out and they were targeting people like, uh, oh, what's her name? That uh, that crazy gal on MSNBC who wore the tampon earrings. You know, somebody as harmless as that. You know, an idiot, for sure, politically. But... Uh, oh, yeah, Melissa Harris-Perry. Melissa Harris-Perry, yes. They were going out and targeting people like that and arresting them and they, they were disappearing them. Uh, you know, in Argentina... For example, under Presidente, uh, Vide- uh, was it Videa? I believe it was uh, Jorge Videa. Uh, they would take you if you had any left-wing political view, and they would put you on a chopper, fly you out over the ocean, and then throw you out into shark-infested waters, and that would be the end of you. And our intelligence services under Reagan and uh, and others, uh, other presidents, were, was a part of this. We, we gladly cooperated with it. And again, it's just an example of a foreign policy that doesn't really care necessarily whether or not uh, you are doing, uh, whether or not you're a dictator or whether or not you're a humanitarian, uh, but that is focused almost entirely on whether or not you do what the Washington foreign policy establishment wants you to do and anything beyond that, you know, do whatever the hell you want. Yeah, it, it, se- it seems fishy to me, so for sure. So switching gears a bit, um, in in regards to this whole thing, and I know that I had brought this up uh, way earlier in the week, and at first uh, it didn't really seem to me like uh, you or I guess the 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 board members were too concerned about this, but well, maybe you were, uh, but I know some of the other board members were not. Uh, to me, and I've tweeted and we and uh, retweeted a whole bunch of stuff about this. It seems that there is a big push uh, from uh, some neocons and war war, uh, establishment types to push Steve Bannon out of the White House, the man who pretty much uh, won Trump the White House and, you know, saved the election, even though they're saying, you know, it was Kelly and, and Conway who who did it. Uh, well, I respect Kellyanne. She, you know. She's on Bannon's side. To my understanding, I'd seen Cernovich tweet that earlier today, that Conway was in the pro-Bannon wing of the White House. Well, yeah. It, I, it, I've it, been following the story somewhat. Um, I can't comment too fully. I, I will say, though, that, yeah, you're right. Um, they are trying to push Bannon out of the White House. And it's not a surprise to me. So uh, it's the reason that it's a, it's the reason that the establishment on both the left and the right, and in the media and the foreign policy establishment, the military industrial complex, it's the reason that they were all against Trump because anybody who wants to change 
America's policies to actually being America first like Bannon does. Anybody who wants to put average Americans ahead of these elite special interests that currently run, for example, our foreign policy, uh, anybody who wants to change that is an enemy of them, and they try to get rid of them immediately. And so they've already kind of surrounded Trump and uh, and have gotten to his daughter and his son-in-law, which is the Trump card for them, so to speak, because, you know, he's not going to go against his own daughter, uh, regardless of how much we might like him to on these issues. And uh, because of that, they don't need to necessarily be super anti-Trump anymore. And you've already seen that, as I addressed in my article, as soon as he bombed Syria, suddenly the media was singing his praises and John McCain was singing his praises and Lindsey Graham was singing his praises and all of these establishment the, types suddenly came out and were like, oh, how great he is. And Lindsey Graham even compared him to Reagan when before they uh, acted like it was blasphemy if you compared him to Reagan. The th- uh, the th- but now, oh, I'll let you good. go. I'll let you Go ahead. Um, no, I was just going to say, yeah, and the thing that really kind of made my blo- made my blood boil is when is when Bill Crystal at, at the Weekly Standard pretty much said that you know that as a as a Never Trumper he he now feels compelled to revoke his Never Trump status following. Uh, you know, Trump's actions in in Syria, well, exactly. and to, and to me, it, it was like, and and I, I've said this on other shows, so, um, it, but it was kind of like fuck you. It was kind of like fuck you, Bill Chris, because I don't I don't think Bill Crystal actually respects Trump at all. all still, I I don't think I don't think he gained Bill's respect at all. I I just think that Bill is saying that because he's part of the he's part of the warmonger establishment so well this isn't the first fuck you bill crystal moment i think i've said that at least a hundred times over the last year and a half but um and and to that point i so i I would love to just be in a panel and ask bill crystal have you ever once in your life given a damn about pushing a policy that actually helps americans in some way because to my knowledge have you ever heard him talk about anything in regards to, to domestic policy or to helping Americans, it's always, we need to go to war with this guy. We need to go to war with this guy. We need to go to war with this guy. We need to give Israel more money. We need to give, um, you know, some other little, we need to give, you know, more money to nation building in Iraq after we wipe the place out. Right. Uh, well, no- and, well and, and by the way, the, the weekly standard, I don't know. I don't know if you've seen their subscription prices, but it's, but it's outrageous. It's like they're, their subscription is like sixty dollars just for the standard magazine, and then if you want to get the uh, the digital the digital version, it's like another thirty dollars. So it's just a sign that they're uh, that they're a fa- that they're failing. They're, they're old media, uh, you know. It's simple economic supply and demand. Uh, when demand goes down, and supply, uh, let me let me see if I can get this right here. I've I've never been an economic sort of person. I've been more of a foreign policy uh, wonk. But uh, when people are not, if if you run, for example, in a small town, uh, there is a grocery store. Nobody is coming to your grocery store anymore, but you need to stay in business. So for the few people that still keep coming to your grocery store, you have to raise prices. So he has raised the price of his magazine. The fact that he's had to raise it that high shows that not that many people are subscribing anymore. And regardless, eventually he'll price himself out and then they'll go bankrupt or they'll go online which 
for someone Bill Crystal's age, I can't see I can't see him making that transition. Well, they well they've already they've already gone on, on one. They're they're just they're charging a, an absorbent amount of money for for the, the online content. That's what I don't understand. But it would it would still though even even if they're still online, the same principle applies. If you don't have if you only have a few people subscribing to you and you want to make a profit, you have to jack the price up to insane levels. That that's that's just me bitching as not even like a politico. That's me bitching as a pub as a publisher or I guess a co a co publisher. So um but uh anyway, yeah, with that being said, I, I don't like how all these never Trumpers are suddenly, you know, cozing up to, to him. So Well the 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 reason is because he they have sufficiently uh, corrupted or fooled or duped him on this issue. Uh, alternatively, maybe Trump himself isn't so completely fooled, but he knows his uh, poll numbers are shit right now. So he decided to go and uh, start a war in the hopes that uh, that would boost his poll numbers. And that's the theory Michael Savage has put forward. I don't know if I subscribe to that. I'm more of the opinion that uh, Trump, you know, it's it's gotten to the point almost where one gets this feeling that if you become U.S. president, you will inevitably succumb to these uh, these pressures. And like I said in my article, he was being hit from all sides when he came in on his platform of putting America first and rejecting the failed foreign policy of the last 50, 60 years. And, uh, and everyone came after him. The intelligence community came after him. The Republican establishment came after him. The Democratic establishment came after him. The media came after him. The business community came after him, uh, and, and you saw that in the election. Hillary was the one receiving most corporate donations, not uh, Donald Trump. Uh, all of them came out after him, and now I guarantee you, after the strike, and like I've said again in my column, we've already seen this with the media and with the Republican establishment, even the Democrat establishment. You had Hillary Clinton and Chuck Schumer going out and saying how great these strikes in Syria were. They've all come around to him because he has – you know, he's sort of caved from the, pre- he's sort of caved from all of the pressure coming in around him. Well, here's my take on, on Trump himself. I know that uh, James Olsop, uh friend of the show, is pissed at Trump himself. Uh, I know quite, I know that Ariana Rollins isn't happy with him either. Uh and they, and they shouldn't be. If, if he is going to betray his... And, and to me, as, as I said earlier, I am a foreign policy wonk. That is right. my big issue. That is what I care most about. And uh, well, part, it, the, yeah. that was the a big promise to me. I was very excited when I saw the uh, second presidential debate and I saw Trump telling the truth about Syria and saying, look, Assad is fighting the terrorists. He may not be the nicest guy in the world, but he is fighting the terrorist and he is protecting religious minorities. Uh, we should help him fight the terrorists. And uh, then Mike Pence came out uh, and maybe, no, this was before. Mike Pence was before. The vice presidential debate was before. And Pence was touting the same old foreign policy establishment line saying, oh, we need to go in. We need to set up these safe zones, which are just a step towards regime change. Because I'll tell you what happens if we start going in and we start putting up these safe zones that we have to go in on the ground and defend. Inevitably, a terrorist will attack that, or there will be an accident where a, uh, a terrorist cell nearby is targeted by the Syrian Air Force or whatever, and the bomb, a stray bomb goes off and hits one of our soldiers at the safe zone, and the next thing you know, we're in a war. So that is 
a safe zone in Syria for the civilians. As sad as it is to say this, us going in to set up a safe zone is a guaranteed uh, a, a guaranteed path to war. Um, right. And that's what Pence was advocating for in the vice presidential debate. The second presidential debate came around, and Trump said everything opposite of what Pence said. He said the exact opposite of what the foreign policy establishment elite in America say. And uh, I remember she was like, well, Vice Pen- you know, Pence, Vice President nominee Pence said the exact opposite stuff last night. And uh, Trump said, well, I respectfully disagree with him on that. And for me, that was big. That was a major win for Trump in my book. Now it's all fallen to shit on that front. Well, I'm not too popular of a guy right now in in either circle and and I'll tell you why because I'm still willing, I'm still willing to give Trump the benefit of the doubt and this ties back to the Steve Bannon thing. Uh, in, by, in general or on this issue because in general Steve, I would say I still support Trump. I've not completely abandoned him but I do disagree very strongly with him on this decision regarding Syria. Well, well, both this this ties in both generally and, and specifically, and this is this is why, to me at least, the Steve Bannon aspect of this is uh, so is so important. Okay, if you look at the tapes face value, if 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 you look at the tapes of what the the chemical attack or what are we? Yeah, the chemical attack okay. in Syria. I. I'm sure we can all we can all agree it is pretty fucking horrifying to to see that, right? It, it is, it can, is. But the uh, what, so I'll let you finish your question. Yeah, what, you what, yeah. What, because because so okay so you okay so you see that Trump sees that that that's horrifying. I, I am kind of playing devil's advocate. Um. You know he's, and he's getting he's getting emotionally invested in this. Uh, ben Bannon, who who knows better about all this stuff, he's getting pushed out uh, of the of the NSC. Uh, you know he he's kind of the voice of reason. And by the way, Bannon also I looked this up today for my article. You know, he served seven seven years in the Navy, and then a, another couple under Reagan. He did. So they're they're pushing they're pushing Bannon out of the out of the NSC, who would be Trump's rational voice. I'm see, I'm not faulting I'm not faulting Trump Trump here because again, and we've talked about this before. He's a he's a newcomer to politics. He you know. And when you see stuff, and when you see something like that at face value, I have to say this: if I didn't know any better, and if one of my advisors, you know, was out of the room, and I didn't have anyone, you know, like Bannon whispering in my ear, or like you, let's say you were my, let's say you were my foreign policy advisor, but yet you got kicked out of the, uh, you know, of the NSC meetings, I would probably be reacting the same way that Trump. That Trump did, honestly, just on face value. You and I and James, we're all looking at this from our perspective, but I'm trying to look at this from Trump's perspective. And, you know, here's the problem. And we know. All all I'm I'm saying is that I don't 
I don't fault him specifically for, from a from an emotional level because essentially I think he's being duped. Well, uh, he is, but you're ignoring, I think, a key aspect of it. It's not necessarily the advisors outside of Bannon, like Jared Kushner and them, are duping him. Uh, but we know that President Trump watches a lot of cable news television. Uh, he tweets about it. You know, every you can, there's a whole cottage industry. Right. What Trump tweets based on, you know, what he's watching on the morning news. As I previously have said, the entire media, Fox News, all of the mainstream television, cable news outlets in America, and almost all of the print media, the New York Times, the Washington Post, all of those, uh, not the Trump's reader, but uh, that I know of anyway, not that we've seen, um, all of them tow Washington's, the Washington foreign policy elite's agenda. And so you say, well, Trump sees these sad little kids and he's horrified about, and, and you know, that that on a, a human moral level, that's revolting and horrifying to see these, these kids, you know, vomiting up and foaming at the mouth because of uh, a chemical attack. Um, but as, it is equally horrifying to see the situation, as I said, in Yemen. But Trump will never see that because that is never put on the American cable news or the right. mainstream media, never. Uh, which, which goes into... A, a, a bit of a further point, as, as I was almost mentioning earlier, uh, regarding the, the tapes of the chemical attack. If you look at that attack, those tapes, you can see almost immediately that this would not have been sarin gas, uh, the, the kind of sarin gas that is uh, that that would be employed uh, by a military force, because almost immediately, people were being handled by uh, first responders with bare hands. If, if somebody had been gassed with pure sarin gas, you cannot touch, well, you can touch them, but it, it would not be advised by a doctor. Uh, you cannot touch right. them with your bare hands because you're going to start to feel some of the effects of the gas on yourself. Um, but these people who were, I'm not denying they, they were gassed. My point is that the gas that was you, that, that the, the chemical agent that went through the air and gassed these people was not a pure variant of sarin gas. It is what I would call the bathtub gin, you know, the kind of, uh, as anybody who's ever made, I've never made, I don't drink, so I've never made alcohol in a bathtub. But uh, uh, as anyone knows, you know, bootleg gin or bootleg alcohol is not like the real thing, right? It doesn't taste near as good. Right. And uh, what you saw there was bootleg sarin gas that was made by the quote-unquote rebels in homemade factories uh, in, in areas they control. And they found plenty of these uh, homemade sarin gas chemical factories being used by rebels in Aleppo after the liberation of Aleppo back in December. And we know that the Syrians have been making their own chemical, the, the Syrian rebels have been making their own chemical weapons. So what was most likely to happen, as the Russian Ministry of Defense said, was these chemical weapons were stored by the Al-Qaeda offshoot that was occupying the city in the missile factory, which is a military target that you would suspect would eventually be bombed. They stored them in this missile factory. The Syrian Arab Army's bombers flew by, bombed the military target without knowing there were chemical weapons in there, and then the chemical agent dispersed it throughout this populated area, and that's how all these kids were poisoned. But that is also why the first responders are able to touch them with their bare hands and then not have any of the kind of reeling physical reactions that you would have if you touched a uh, sarin gas victim yourself with a, a, a victim of pure sarin gas with your bare hands. 
Right, right. Yeah, no, no, and, and I and I get all that. I guess my point being is I don't like the fact that people are al- are already burning their MAGA hats and saying, "Oh well, fuck Trump, he he let us down." I I think that rather than saying, "That cost me fifty dollars," I don't think I'd burn it anyway. Uh- <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it, I I I mean, mine cost me thirty five dollars, and that was that was in New York City, and that was actually on sale too. Uh, no, my 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 point, moreover, is there are people you know who kind of in that am first group who are, who are already kind of jumping ship on Trump, and I'm kind of like, well, he's my 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 point is I'm not saying I'm not exonerating him completely, but I'm saying he is being duped by people, and I think rather than abandoning him and saying screw him, I think that we that we ought to you know kind of circle around him. And try and help, try and help him, him, him out of this, kind of. Uh, excuse me, but um, yeah, I, I think we ought to try and help him rather than just saying screw him because that's not in our best interest. And uh, you know, considering how many people campaigned for him, I'm, I'm a little surprised at how many people are just you know jumping ship all of a sudden. So I, I don't, it's a tough one for me. Um, you know, what, what he did in Syria was definitely not what I voted for when I voted for him. Uh, like I said, though, I've not completely abandoned him yet because hopefully he doesn't, you know, turn and jump ship on all his other, um, other domestic policy proposals. Although quite <laughs> frankly, I suspect that may happen already. We see the Republican establishment telling him, well, we don't have money for a border wall, but by God, we have $60 million we can piss away in an airstrike on Syria. Um, uh, VA, VA reform, which is, which is another topic that I want to cover with you. This is kind of my wheel, wheelhouse a bit, but one of the, one of the issues, and, and mine, mine's not as nuanced or advanced, but one of my whole concerns with us going into Syria is, uh, and I wrote this in my article uh, that will be posted on American Watchmen, but one of the big problems that happened after Iraq, even during Iraq, was we had a bunch of wounded veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, and um, they were severely injured, and yet the VA... Uh, was both very over, overwhelmed and all, but also the staff was incredibly incompetent and they didn't know what the hell they were doing. So we had a we had a mass influx of wounded veterans who weren't getting the proper care that they needed and in some cases were being abused by uh, by VA staff members. And this is one of the things that drives me crazy too is we send our troops over to fight in these foreign wars and yet when we come back when they come back the government the VA which is supposed to take care of them not only do they not do they not take care of them but in some cases they neglect them and they don't give them the proper care that that they need i would be much more open to a to going into Syria and taking that stance if I knew, okay, well, the VA is going to take care of our 
uh, men and women in uniform. One of the reasons I voted for Trump, one of the things that kind of changed my mind on Trump uh, was when he went, when he skipped that one primary debate, which everyone said was going to, to be mission critical. And when he, when he went to fundraise for wounded veterans, uh, because aside from the border wall and whatnot, the VA was another key issue, you know, reforming the VA was another key issue that he, you know, ran on. And so I would rather him put our veterans first rather than, um, you know, foreigners, because yes, the, the Syrian, the Syrian gas attack was horrible, you know, and it's horrible to see children in foreign countries dying, but it's also horrible to think that 22 veterans commit suicide per day because they can't get, you know, the help they need. And so they say, screw it and, uh, you know, kill themselves. Here's here's the problem, and here's why you will never be able to go to war in Syria and get that kind of care for the veterans. And, lo- and allow me to explain this by explaining yeah, what please, happened please in, do. Our, in Iraq. We cut spending on all sorts of domestic programs during the Bush era. The GOP Congress did. Uh, as you know, they, they love to cut everything. And uh, the, the globalist agenda is always foreigners first, Americans second. So we had trillions of dollars that we could spend to go and build Iraq and fight in Iraq and do all of this BS over there that didn't help a single person over here. And we could not afford, as you said, they were overwhelmed at the VA hospitals. Well, why are they overwhelmed? Why are government agencies overwhelmed? It's because their budgets are being cut. And, and, and you ask, well, why are these uh, staffers abusing them? Because the budget of the people whose job it is to uh, make sure every, you know, the worst, the, the quality control organizations, you know, the people that are supposed to monitor them are also facing budget cuts because we cut every domestic service in order to inflate an unsustainably high defense budget, which is rarely, if ever used for defense, it's always used to go on offense. And, uh, and, and, and I might add offense that has nothing to do with us, you know, like going into Iraq, what did, what did removing Saddam Hussein do for a single American? And what would removing Assad do remove for a single American? Nothing. War is one of the most expensive. Exactly. War is one of the most expensive things a government can do. Iraq showed that. And at first, and the way they always do it is they're like, oh, well, we go in at first and it's only, only they'll say $2 trillion. But then when you go over there, you end up getting stuck over there, and then the cost gradually goes up. War is incredibly expensive to do. And like Mike Cernovich tweeted himself earlier today, if you would have taken all of the money that we pissed away on the Iraq war, you could have afforded free premium health care for every single person in the United States. Premium health care, including our veterans, for yeah. everybody. And, and, and that's the, that's the problem. And if, if we go into Syria, like you said, you would have been more open to going into Syria. If you knew that we would be able to take care of our veterans. If we go into Syria boots on the ground in a way that would put our veterans in harm's way, which would make it where they need that kind of care, you would never be able to give them the kind of care they deserve because we would be spending so much trying to fight a war that we shouldn't have gone into in the first place. And uh, for me, and I'm, I'm trying not to get choked up here uh, as I say this, but 
you know, I've I've had I've had experience. I I've met uh, wounded veterans. I I think I told you the story of how I used to have a service dog, and mm-hmm. I I gave I gave that dog to a uh, to a wounded veteran. That wounded veteran, uh, Staff Sergeant Ian Newland, he's been a guest on the program uh, a, a long time ago, but he had to go through unimaginable just horrors uh, having to deal with the VA system. And, you know, he has post-traumatic stress disorder. It, it, it broke up his family, uh, uh, essentially, um, just because of his you know, panic attacks and whatnot. It just got, you know, there were other things too in that marriage that I'm not going to get into, but, you know, long, long story short, the, uh, the Iraq war, you know, took a toll on him and, you know, that's the case for many other veterans. And yeah, like I said, the, the, the Syrian gas attack is horrible but what's what's horrible to me is the fact that you know veterans can't get the care they needed which leads to broken families here in the US and you know contrast that back to the Korean War or or World War 2 you know young men went into the service and they were promised you know benefits that soldiers now could only dream of that that goes back to my point, though. I'm glad you said that. I said earlier that since 1959, our military-industrial complex, and, and the reason I say 1959 over and over again, for, for those who aren't so well acquainted with history, was 1959 was the year that Dwight D. Eisenhower left office. He was no longer president. JFK succeeded him, and then almost immediately we got into Vietnam. But before Eisenhower left office, he warned about the military-industrial complex. And Eisenhower was a great Republican president. Regarding the VA and programs like that, in, specific, in particular, he said that anybody who wanted to take funding away from those programs or anybody who wanted to get rid of those programs shouldn't call themselves an American. I know that he didn't say it in those in harsher terms, but that's right. what he said. You can't, you can't get those. We have to put our own people first. No, and, and I, I, and I've I've read that same speech, so I know what you're talking about. And and um, when when you joined the military to fight in the Korean War or in World War II. You came back and there were funds for that kind of thing because we weren't constantly at war. Since the ni- since the 1950s, we have started over 80 aggressive conflicts, most of the time that have nothing to do with our interests or the United States. We've started over 80 of them, and it's almost constantly. We have been at war more than almost any other country in the history of the world. And that costs an insane amount of money that forces us here at home to go without our veterans and our people and all these other programs. And then these uh, establishment conservatives and Democrats, the foreign policy establishment will have you believe on the right that the government is evil and it's always the problem and that there should be some private program for like the veterans. It shouldn't be the VA at all. When in reality, if they would just be willing to take a cut to the damn defense budget and you could cut the defense budget 10 times over and we would still have the strongest military on earth. For all of the cuts Obama made, did you ever doubt at any point in time during the last eight years that we could wipe anyone off the face of the earth if we wanted to? Of course not. No. Obama's cuts were not that bad. Uh, We're not as bad as you hear the Republicans make them out to be all the time. But 
if they would accept making cuts to the defense budget, which they never will because the military industrial complex controls our country, then you would be able to have quality care for our veterans and on all these other domestic problems we have, like infrastructure, for example. And, and, it, and it all stems back to 1959 when Dwight D. Eisenhower warned at the end of his term that the military-industrial complex was go- growing too powerful. And then almost immediately, you know, with Kennedy, we start getting into the Vietnam War. Kennedy hints that, hints that we might need to have defense cuts, and then he suddenly gets shot. And then, you know, we get Lyndon Johnson, who gets us even deeper into the war with more lies, and, and it goes on. You, you, can, well, you can trace very clearly the beginning of our foreign policy problems that began to cause domestic policy problems with things like the VA. Well, not just that, but I mean, Johnson was also the one who started the Great Society, which essentially broke up the black, you know, family. That's why we have so much, you know, urban crime now. And, you know, that's that's a whole other topic for a whole other show. But, you know, going so going back to my point, the the reason I bring up the VA is a a like I said it's it's a topic that I'm very passionate about but b it's a topic that very few people who are opposed to, to the conflict are are, bring, are bringing up because a, a lot of the whole a lot of the whole you know isolationist rhetoric is well we shouldn't get involved in matters that don't concern us and they're they're right they're, they're right. But to kind of we don't have to, we don't have to be isolationists to do that though. As as I said, pr- I praised Eisenhower a lot this episode. He's one of my favorite presidents. Eisenhower put America first. We weren't constantly at war, but he also flexed our military might and muscle in a way that did not require us to go to war. Uh, for example, in Israel, he demanded that then Israeli Prime Minister David Ben Gurion remove Israeli forces from the Sinai Peninsula and give it back to Egypt. Can you imagine a U.S. president making a demand like that now with all of the money that goes to our government from APAC, for example? Or uh, another another example, uh, during Eisenhower's term, there was the Prague Spring, and uh, there was the attempt in the Eastern Bloc by some to try and nor- – to not normalize, but to uh, – to to soften up the hardline policies of the communist governments over there. Eastern Europe is part of Russia's sphere of influence. Eisenhower said, look, that's Russia's backyard. We're not going to do a thing. But now we're constantly trying to be involved in Russia's backyard in Ukraine, for example. Eisenhower understood that we put America first. We defend our interests when we have to. And we use our power. We project our power in a way that we don't have to constantly be at war, but the rest of the world knows, look, you don't screw with us or bad things can happen to you. Well, well, that constantly be at war. Well, and that's, you know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's essentially what Korea was all about. Korea was about showing our might, but yet, I mean, the reason you never hear about Korea is because, you know, honestly, it was, it was kind of from what I remember reading, it was kind of a success. It wasn't some long and drawn out thing. Um, well, it was a success in that regard in, in terms of, you know, there, there were some general, that was under President Truman uh, for the most part. It was under President Truman at first and then the war was finished out under Eisenhower. Uh, partially 
because Eisenhower won by saying the Democrats were going soft on it. Uh, debatable. Uh, anyway, and, and the reason that that accusation came up was because Truman removed General MacArthur. General MacArthur wanted to have us go all the way and march into China. Uh, and that, and that, you know, that's that's a whole another story. Point is, point is, the Korean War ended exactly where it began, uh, the uh, 38th parallel. Um, what happened was North Korea under Kim Il Sung thought that they could invade South Korea and take over the whole peninsula. At the time, our strategy was containment to prevent communism from expanding around the globe, and so we went in to defend uh, South Korea from being taken over by the communists. And that's why we went there. As you can see, though, there was no corporate interest involved there like there is today. Today, you can almost always find some elite special interest behind why our country is obsessed with going to war with someone. In Korea, though, it was clearly a case of defending an ally of ours against communist aggression. You, you can see the difference uh, from, from how the wars were back then, before 1959, where they were largely defensive operations on our part. In the wars since 1959, where 99.9% of the time, we are the aggressor. Uh, our media spins it in such a way as to make it look like we're going in for humanitarian causes or we're going in to spread democracy or some other bullshit propaganda reason that our people are told in order to get them to go along with a war that is not in their own best interests. Yeah. Um, well... One thing I do want to want to ask you, you mentioned you've over and over again, you've brought up the whole thing that, you know, there's a huge corporate interest in war. And I, I've, I've heard that before, but, uh, you know, for the audience and for me, can, can you, can you explain that a little more? Like, and are there, are there any like specific corporations that you can name more, more specifically? Uh, to, to use Iraq, you had Halliburton. They went in and they, after we, our military went in and after we completely blew Iraq to bits, Halliburton went in and Halliburton, uh, for those who are not aware, the CEO of Halliburton prior to his becoming vice president was Dick Cheney. Uh, they went over into Iraq and they made millions with little to no bidding. The, the, The bidding process was almost virtually rigged to ensure that they were the company they got picked to go in and rebuild Iraq. Uh, and, and they got all those contracts and made millions and millions of dollars. And Dick Cheney as a stockholder made millions and millions of dollars. Uh, and that's not even counting the oil companies like ExxonMobil that went in over there and made millions and millions of dollars off of building, rebuilding all these oil fields that were destroyed. This is the whole point. Uh, as part, This is part of the point for wanting to go to war in Syria. As you know, uh, the point of there there's the reason the foreign policy establishment wants to go into syria is two-pronged one reason is just which is to get rid of isis the other reason is not which is to get rid of assad and they have said over and over again that our goal will be thus far that the way that the mccain's and grams of the world want to do it is they want to go in and they want to get rid of isis which is great uh and they want to then go in and get rid of assad afterwards but why do they want to do that well, on Syrian territory and in Iraqi territory, ISIS, as you know, has destroyed a lot of oil wells and a lot of oil fields. They've just burnt them and destroyed them to a crisp. And so ExxonMobil and these companies want to go in and guess who's going to get the money to rebuild all these things. Uh, in particular in Syria, the reason the focus has been on Aleppo is because beneath Aleppo, all of the major oil pipelines in the Middle East crisscross. That is the uh, the focal point, if you will. I don't know if that's the 
the correct term, but you know, as they say, all roads lead to Rome, all pipelines in the Middle East lead to Aleppo. And uh, if you control Aleppo, then you are able to control the flow of oil throughout the region. And that is another reason that our foreign oil interests want to go, that our elite oil interests want to go in. Um, more specifically to the point, sorry, I'm, a bit, uh, I'm having a bit of the same problem you were having there. Uh, other companies that want to go in, uh, particularly the defense contract industry, I can't name by name all of the companies that produce our weapons for us, but the people that make our F-22 uh, Raptors and the people that make all of our rifles. Every time you go to war, a lot of stuff gets destroyed. I mean, just the other night, we we destroyed $60 million worth in uh, cruise missiles. Well, you know what that means now. That whichever company make those, made those cruise missiles for us is going to go, and they're going to make $60 million worth in profit now because we're going to have to buy $60 million worth of missiles to replace those missiles. So, of course, the uh, defense contractors who are the military-industrial complex, of course they want us to be at war all the time because that means they're constantly making a profit off of selling us weapons. Uh, as I said earlier, you have in Syria, Assad's outlawed GMOs. Well, if he's outlawed GMOs, then that obviously hurts a lot of American agricultural companies that use GMOs, which are not good for you. The science is clear on that. They should be banned here, but they're not. Uh, and that's, again, another topic for a whole episode. They want to uh, go in and get rid of Assad so they can start making money off of selling all this GMO stuff to uh, Syria. And you can go down the list and you can find special interest after special interest. You have, you know, the IMF and the World Bank, which want to go and lend money to the Syrian government. But Assad says no, because he understands that once you take money from them, you start having to do what they tell you to do. Yeah. And that's just some of them. You know, obviously we could go all night and list the different, uh, you know, kind of corporate interests that control it. And, and that, in terms of how it controls the legislators themselves, who, do, who donates money to uh, people like John McCain and Lindsey Graham and Marco Rubio's campaigns. If you look, it's almost always the defense contractors that make up the bulk of their campaign donations. So, of course, they're the uh, legislators in particular who are almost always pushing for war. And then you look at, like, say, Rand Paul, and you, f and you will find that there are little to no donations at all from these uh, defense contractor companies. Yeah, it, it's just... Uh, it's... It's it's a mess, um, and you know, like I said, uh, hopefully we don't go we don't go in in there um, to to Syria. Um, yeah, I mean, what what else can can we can we really say other than this is shaping up to be ugly? If uh, I, don't, I don't know necessarily if we're going to go in yet, it certainly looks not, like. Right. There. Uh, Iraq kind of sort of got started with cruise missiles. Uh, I believe it was in 19, 1997. Then President Clinton ordered uh, some cruise missiles to be fired into uh, into Iraq. at uh, Instead of an airfield, for them, when we launched the cruise missiles, we launched it at like their, CIA, their version of the CIA, their intelligence headquarters. And uh, then shortly after that, when Bush Jr. was elected, Clinton told Bush Jr., oh, look, the uh, the biggest problem, I think, is that the most dangerous man in the world is still alive, who, who according to Bill Clinton, was Saddam Hussein, uh, not Osama bin Laden, who was more likely the most dangerous man in the world at that time, as we would sadly find out a couple of years later. But when Bush came in, Clinton told, uh, when, when Bush Jr. came in, Clinton told him 
that uh, Saddam Hussein is the most dangerous man in the world, and I regret the fact he's still in power. You can almost bet your ass that uh, when when uh, Trump came into office during that car ride that him and Obama have to take to the inauguration, you can, or or when they were at the White House prior to Trump prior to Trump being sworn in, you can almost bet your ass that uh, Obama was sitting in there telling him, "Look, Putin and Assad are the most dangerous people in the world, and they need to be taken down." And we saw how that worked out for, for Clinton and Bush. So, right, and and see that that's the that's the whole other thing too is I I know that people aren't aren't, aren't fans of George Bush, but honestly, I do think that there is a lot of a felt play in terms of, um, you know, the left after nine eleven happened, they were all four Bush going, going into Iraq, right? Yet from, yet from 2004 to 2008, George Bush, say what you will about him, but they were just saying horrible things and calling him a baby killer and just really horrible things. And I think that's what they're going to try and do with Trump too. If they can get him to go to war with Syria, then they'll pretend like, what? We didn't want this. And they'll call us from the warmonger. So that's, that's just the partisan game being played between Republicans and Democrats to make it look like there's some difference on foreign policy. But when you, when you really look though, consistently, there hasn't been much of a difference. I I know, but I know, but it's, but it's still fucking slimy. And I, I've, I've, I've always hated that aspect too so um the uh they they, they're all praising trump right now for the airstrike and and here's the thing here here i guess is the point um they 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 praise this initial going in uh because they delude themselves into thinking that constantly going and invading other countries somehow works even though there is no historical evidence of it ever working for us and uh, then when the shit inevitably hits the fan, they blame the guy who's ever in power at the time so that they can get rid of him. And then the next election around, they can say, elect me to do the same thing because I'll make it work, even though it never works. And then they turn around, and they do the same thing over and over again. And, and, and to that point also, they, the, the establishment, like you said earlier, they don't respect Trump because they have turned him into their puppet on this issue. Uh, they undoubtedly will still want to destroy him because of the fact that his campaign still remains a symbol of them losing for the first time ever, you know, uh, since 1959, a candidate coming in and saying, look, foreign policy can't be business as usual anymore. We have to make a major change. That's the message he won on, and they want to wipe that out. Right. So if, they can, if they can ruin the legacy of, uh, of that by getting him into a war uh, in Syria – then they'll be able to kind of twist it around like I just said a moment ago and say, look, oh, the way he did it is wrong, but we're going to do it right the next time. And then they'll go and they'll march us off into another pointless war. So not not, not to back you into a corner here or, or set you up, but a while ago I I said it. I know that you and I disagreed on this point uh, for a while, but I had, I had said a couple months back when the whole – when CPAC – Pack and the neocons basically tried to sabotage Milo Yiannopoulos by bringing up the whole, you know, his whole gaffe. I I had said that the neocons 
you know, we're trying to set up Milo because Milo was also kind of in that anti. To my knowledge, Mr. Yiannopoulos has come out and said that that the, the, the airstrike on Syria has been a terrible idea. So he's right on Syria. Right. Well, I well, but the point being is I know that I know that I was a Milo fan and, and you weren't, but I I I have to say I I think more and more I was right that I was right that this whole that the whole setup was, you know, that it wasn't Milo's fault necessarily that he got that he got the shaft, but that that's just me. So. I think there's some truth to that. I, I, I yeah. think I think that the establishment tries to take down anybody who uh, who who preaches something uh, alternative to their uh, official party line and gets too popular. Uh, you know they've done that with uh, you know for example two documentarians that I really like are Oliver Stone and uh, John Pilger who both have done wonderful jobs cr- criticizing the problems with American foreign policy. And they paint them out to be these two lunatics uh, all the time for some reason. Well, isn't isn't Oliver, isn't Oliver Stone a big lefty though? Um, I'm not quite sure what his politics are. I know he made uh, a movie about. Uh, he he's made some good movies. He made the movie W, which did not portray uh, the Bush presidency in the most uh, favorable light, but he portrayed it in a realistic light in terms of their foreign policy. Uh, his movie on Nixon was really good. I thought. Um, it, it was objective, I, as far as I'm concerned. But I don't know I, his politics. Yeah, I, I, beyond, I, beyond his criticism of foreign policy, the thing I will say though, uh, if he is a lefty, uh, is that there there is what I call the corporate right and the corporate left, and then there is the uh, the new right, or you know, some have have called it the alt right or the new right or the paleo conservative right or whatever the hell you want to call it, and uh, then there is uh, I don't really know what to call the non-corporate left, but, you know, no- Noam Komsky, for example, may be a socialist, and he may be wrong, in my opinion, on a lot of domestic issues, but every criticism of the United States media I have seen from Komsky is, uh, sp- is spot on. Every criticism of American foreign policy from him is uh, spot on. Uh, and to, to that effect, if uh, if Mr. Stone is a leftist uh, or on the left wing, then uh, I won't lose any respect for him because uh, on this particular issue, because on this particular issue, he's right regardless of what he thinks of other things. You know, there are there are areas where the left and the right can agree on common sense foreign policy, for example. Yeah, and uh, you know, just pure, just purely as as a movie guy, I I, I like his I like his movies too. He uh, you know he did he did pl- platoon which. Uh, Say what you will about Charlie Sheen, but he was he was good in Platoon. He, he recently did a movie, a, a documentary, a bio, a biographical film on Edward Snowden too. I believe I haven't seen that one yet, though. Well, he well he also did a movie on one of my favorite bands, the uh, the Doors, which I know you hadn't heard of because well, we, so that's where the reference. Okay, but uh, you know that was uh, pretty good too. Um, I mean. They're all sixty minutes. I I'm sure you saw this. Sixty minutes tried to do a hit piece on Cerna on Cernovich by uh, comparing him to some sat satire guy and saying that Cerna that Cerna was a fake journalist. Um, 
also making fun of his stutter, um, too. I, I did, I did see that, and uh, he he just showed how uh, the well, well, I'll, I guess I'll I'll reference that with a John Pilger. Uh, I know I'm really quite sure how to pronounce his last name, Pilger or Pilger. Um, a John Pilger quote. Uh, and, and what he has always said is that the official line on anything is often just a very elaborate illusion. And, uh, in that 60 minutes interview, I forget the 60 minute interview guy's name, but he asked Cernovich, uh, about Hillary Clinton's, uh, uh, medical episode she had where she stumbled into her van and was unconscious. And, uh, he asked Cernovich about this and, uh, he's like, well, the campaign and her doctor, said that uh, she was just having a really bad cold. And it's like, well, of course the campaign's going to tell you she's all right. She's running for president. It's their job to make her win. But the media just ran with that line because that was the official line of those in authority. You know, yeah. and, and if, a journalist, if a journalist is not asking hard questions power, and if, they're, if, if a journalist is readily accepting the official line of those in power, then they're not a real journalist at all. They're just a propagandist because they are, uh, they are, uh, accepting an official line. They're not trying to investigate it. They're just rolling with it. I mean, was there any CNN investigation beyond just calling the Clinton campaign up and saying, Hey, does she have uh, Parkinson's? No. All right. Good enough for me. <laughs> they hung up the phone. But, well, uh, well, well, and the other thing too, regard regarding the media is you remember, you remember when there was that whole, thing about trump uh making fun of that disabled reporter right i do well the well that whole that whole thing never happened what it was was trump was trump was mocking ted cruz and doing hand gestures and then some guy was like oh trump was making fun of that uh reporter with cp who um you know and doing the whole disabled thing. Now, speaking as someone who has CP and who can and who can mock someone like that, even though my case isn't as severe as that journalist, Trump would have Trump would have to act way more severe severely in order to in order to mock that journalist. So that was one thing. But but my point is they got upset for um at Trump for doing something that he never did with mocking that journalist. Well, but then they, but then they've turned around and they've mocked uh, Mike Cernovich who has a slight stutter. And because of that stutter, Cernovich isn't a journalist according to left-wing media. Well, not only that, but for example, on that, the case of that, that, uh, that, uh, that alleged impression of the journalist Trump did, uh, what clearly on the, on the issue of Hillary Clinton's health, all they did was call the Clinton campaign. The Clinton campaign said, no, everything was fine. And they just rolled with it. And that was the end of the investigation. But when Trump did something like that, they hounded him for weeks about it, constantly asking the campaign about it. And when the campaign said, no, that was it. So it was very clear that they were siding with at the time, the establishment answer, you know, like I just said, if a journalist is not investigating and asking the real hard questions to the powerful, if they're just accepting an official line, then they're just helping to spread the uh, the illusion of truth that is provided by those in power to cover up what they're actually doing, as John Pilger would say. Prior prior to this election cycle, I had never I had never really revealed 
had a disability, it's kind of, you know, it's common knowledge now, but what happened was one of my family members who was on the left, you know, essentially, I don't know if doxing is the right term, but I think that, I think in this case, that kind of would be the term to kind of say, oh, well, you have CP too, so, and I was kind of like, yeah, and your point is, what exactly? And I mean, that, so that that's kind of how, you know, this whole thing has gone on too, is you see a lot of people just throwing smoke and mirrors at the kind of new slash alt-right, I guess, so, mm-hmm. but... Ah, well, okay, Uh, one final question kind of as a promotional. Uh, Well, what are you talking about? What are you talking on the Deplorable podcast tomorrow? And uh, are you going to change the name or what (laughs) exactly? This week has kind of put you in a pickle for that, my friend. Uh, Well, what else could I talk about besides Syria? I think we've all kind of seen how passionate I am about that issue. Uh, So obviously Syria is going to make up the bulk of the show tomorrow. Uh, regarding the name, I don't feel any reason to change the name. Uh, you know, the re- I was inspired by Mike Cernovich's Deplorable events, and I'm like, oh, I'll do the Deplorable uh, podcast. Uh, so I, I see no reason to change the name, because instead of, you know, as, as, as he calls it, the new right, I called them the Deplorables. Some other people are calling them American Firsters. Uh, I still say, you know, the Deplorables, because it, it's catchy. Uh, the Deplorables... Um, is, is, a, is a good title, I guess. I, I see no reason to change the title uh, on my program. Uh, the program is still about promoting America first ideas and about promoting nationalism and traditionalism. So I see no points in, the ch- in changing the title, I guess. That, that hasn't really put me in a pickle in that regard. Um, but uh, regarding the question we ask at the end of the show, I'm probably going to have to come up with a slightly different one now. Um... I might work that out before tomorrow. I might work it out as we're going through the episode. Uh, I might get viewer suggestions. And then hopefully by next weekend's episode, I'll have another guest on uh, again. Cause I would like to have a guest because I feel like the show's kind of flow better. Uh, and I, I would like to have a different guest every week. None, no repeat guests or something. Uh, so that's all I have to say about my program, I guess. Yeah. I've noticed that like, I kind of do like the long form crossfire um, format on my podcast, which is interesting because uh, the the Buckley Club was anti-Trump, uh, and yet I'm not saying I am William F. Buckley by any means, but considering firing line, but con- yeah, but considering the, oh yeah, it was firing line, uh, yeah, considering that. You and I are both, uh, you know, publishers of a up-and-coming conservative magazine, which people which people forget that the original national that the original National Review was not mainstream when it when Buckley started it, it was kind of renegade uh, when it, when it started, but um, you know, and then you and I both kind of have fire a lot firing line ish type podcasts or talk shows, so. Uh, which I guess kind of interjecting, what do you think Buckley himself would have said about all this? Was he a, he was always talking about domestic stuff. So I never all got, what was his impression of uh, 
domestic policy as far as you can remember? Um, you know, I think on, on terms of domestic policy, I can't, I, I can't really, it's hard to speak about these historical figures because, you know, they lived in different times with different issues. Right. And, and you know, you can't really say about what, that's, that's the reason I don't like things like the Buckley Club today because Buckley died in, uh, what was it, 2005, I think? He died in like 2008. And, um, and uh, you know, the, the issues we were dealing with then, and the, in particular the issues that he dealt with through most of his political career during the Cold War, are radically different than a lot of the things we see today. Um, so I, I guess I can't really say what I think he would say about domestic policy. I, I can say that I don't think he would be as gung-ho against the Donald, uh, as, uh, the Buckley club makes, uh, him out to, uh, makes it out like he would have been, um, as, in terms of foreign policy, I guess, Syria, my point, uh, again, I can't really say, uh, what he would say about, um, our foreign policy, because to my knowledge, he was a okay with the, the, the way things were going and, and failing for us, uh, throughout his lifetime. Um, there's not much I can say to that effect. I mean, he was part of what came after Eisenhower uh, in, in the 60s. You know, that's when he really began to make his up-and-coming career in the yeah. conservative movement. So I, 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 he, he, he lived in a different time, I can't say. Yeah, no. Well, well and, and I, did, I was just curious because I know that we talk about Buckley a lot. Um, and I'll, I will kind of say the same thing about even Andrew Breitbart, you know, he passed away, you know, only five years ago. And yet, you know, even from five years ago, we're living in a different world. Um, so, you know, I don't think he, I don't think he would have been anti-Trump either. And, uh, you know, or pro-Trump. I mean, honestly, who, who knows what would have happened if Breitbart were still alive. Um, but, uh yeah, I mean, so in conclusion, I think, you know, it's safe to say that I think we should still, you know, try and rally around behind Trump and support him where we can, and yet, you know, remain vigilant and making sure that further conflict within Syria does not occur. Would you agree? Um. Yeah, I earlier, like I kind of said, we don't know if he's going to uh, go further uh, in Syria. Hopefully, God willing, this is the end of it, and this is his only major mistake in the region because as of tonight, uh, the, the airstrike on that airbase, there was a nearby Christian town uh, that that airbase was protecting. I forget the name particularly right now, but Paul Joseph Watson reported on it, and so did Free Thought Project. And um, that town, because they have lost the defense of the Syrian Arab Air Force, uh, they are now kind of open to attack from terrorists. That's very unfortunate. Uh, I'll, I'll be keeping them in my prayers. I hope that we all keep those poor Syrian Christians in our prayers. They're not just the Christians, but, you know, everybody who's living in that town. And uh, hopefully it doesn't fall to terrorism, but that has become much more likely after Trump's airstrike. But on, a, on the larger field of things, this is not going to change the tide of the war. You know, the war has been going very much in the Syrian government's favor 
over this last year and over these past few months. Uh, this single airstrike is not going to change anything. And God willing, this is the end of Trump's uh, intervention in Syria. On the domestic front, of course, I'll still support him so long as he keeps trying to put America first. Now, if he sells out on more things, uh, as I am worried he will do on the wall, because already the Republicans in Congress, the the establishment, is already saying we don't have money for the wall, but we somehow have money for this bloated defense budget, and we have money to go and try and intervene in foreign countries. They're saying we don't have money for the wall. Uh, hopefully he doesn't go back on that. If he doesn't go back on his promises, I'll still keep on supporting him. As of now, I support him, even though I disagree with him intensely on Syria. Well, it, well, it, well, and some of the Republicans are also starting to bind the whole left-wing propaganda that the wall is racist somehow, which I'm not liking either. But, uh, you know, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm pretty much where you are, um, too, so... Um, any final thoughts or shall we call this tonight, a show? Tonight I did have something in particular I wanted to say, which may be controversial to some listeners and, uh, I don't yeah. really care. But long, long live secular Syria. That's, that's the, the battle cry of, uh, Syria's army right now. And those that are supporting, uh, the Syrian government in this war, especially, uh, as things are going on. So long live secular Syria. That's my message for tonight. Okay, then, um, you know, and if any other, any other topics that you want to bring up, even if they're not related to Syria or anything right, else? Right now, that is my focus. And I have, uh, you know, if, if you only would have seen me in 2013, I was, I was focused in like a hawk on preventing this too, during the whole incident around Gouda. Uh, and so until, until things calm down a bit, uh, my focus will be wholly wrapped up in what's going on in the Syrian crisis. Gotcha. So there's, there's nothing else I've wanted to really, I, I can, if you ask a specific question, I might have something, but in terms of anything else I would bring up right now, probably not, probably not. If you have a question, go ahead and ask, but. Well, well, I, I, I know that you'll keep us uh, updated on Syria. So, um, because, because you always do. Um, so, yeah, and I mean, I'm I'm thinking back, and when I when I was a teenager, I was more of a uh, of a neocon. You know, let's let's. Oh, oh, I remember what I wanted to bring up. This this was something I I had blanked on, but the uh, the other thing was, I find it funny that people are insisting, and by people I mean military establishment is insisting that we need a whole to send a whole army over to. Uh, to Syria because if you remember when we took out Osama bin Laden, what did we send in? We sent in SEAL Team Six in the clandestine service. It was twelve it was twelve elite badasses, you know, who took out, you know, bin Laden and his compound well, and Well didn't... well would you like to, would would you like to know why that's not going to be an option for, for them, why they'll never do that in Syria? I know what you're thinking. You're, sure. You're, think, you're thinking it would make a whole. If we were concerned about the chemical weapons, why not just send in SEAL Team Six to destroy the chemical weapons at wherever they're being hidden, right? Well, well, that's 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 not an option for for the military establishment that wants regime change in Syria, because as our State Department confirmed back in 2014, or maybe it was early 2015, I can't remember when, uh, they confirmed and the United Nations confirmed 
that the Syrian government had destroyed 100% of their chemical weapons. The, the Syrian regime does not have any chemical weapons with them anymore. The only chemical weapons over there are the ones that are being produced by the rebels with the support of Saudi Arabia and these Salafist Gulf states. So they will never, that, that it, it's, it, they, they cannot send them in because if you sent in SEAL Team 6 to find uh, the chemical weapons that Assad allegedly has, they would find nothing and the whole ruse of Assad being the one behind all this would fall apart and they would lose their whole, uh, re- their whole reason for trying to trick people into wanting us to go into Syria. Right. Well, well, and that, and that goes against kind of like, here's my, here's, I guess, here's my foreign policy. And, uh, you know, this is, this is kind of why the left hates me. I say, I say kind of screw the Geneva convention. I think, I think black ops in the, in the, in the clandestine service, say what you will about the CIA, but, but the clandestine service was one of the most genius things that we ever did in terms of you know making up these small black budget teams basically to go and kill separate you know people and do it in stealth i think we ought to do a lot more of that as far as foreign policy goes if we were serious rather than erecting big ginormous armies again again though and maybe i got my first thing wrong on what you're thinking to my understanding now you're saying that if they wanted to really get rid of Assad, they could send in the clandestine service and kill him, correct? Yeah, and that, yeah, that, if, that, if if Assad were that big of a threat. So here, here, Here's the thing, though. The reason they wouldn't want to do that is, again, is their goal is regime change. They're not interested in that. They, they want to completely wipe the Syrian government as it currently exists out, off the map, just like they did in Iraq. And they want to rebuild from the ground up with their own imperialist puppet that will do what they want and what the military industrial complex wants and what the IMF and the world bank want and what the, uh, the, uh, wall street corporate interests want. Yeah. That, that's what they want. That's why just killing one man is not an option for them because they have to wipe the whole Syrian government away first. And, and that's what they want. They don't just want to get rid of him. They want to get rid of secular Syria as it is today and replace it with a government that will answer to them and their elite special interests. Yeah, no, uh, no. I mean, I, I, I get that. I just, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's interesting that people say that you're, that you're, that like I'm anti-war and that you're anti-war. I'm not anti-war at all. In fact, I kind of take it to an extreme of, like I said, I have no problem with the CIA and the clandestine service assassinating people when it's when it's called for. The, the problem is, is we don't do assassinations anymore of dictate of dictators or leaders we erect big giant armies to try and take people out and it, it never works so I, I guess i'm more on the fence on that one you know this kind of goes back to what i said earlier unless that leader is posing a direct threat to us like say kim jong-un uh unless it's someone like that I, I wouldn't really say i'm in favor you know if, if they want to just go in and they want to kill somebody because this particular foreign leader does not do what the elite special interests want that's wrong because if if that is what the people of that country are okay with having lead them you know if, if that's their government and that's their policies and they're happy with it then you know let it stay uh because every sovereign nation has a right to pick their own leaders and pick their own policies 
But uh, if we're going in there and we're having someone assassinated simply because they they don't act like our puppet, then that is wrong. I would say. Yeah, but yeah, but but, but if they're threatening us, though, that's that's different. If it's a direct threat to it's a, if it's an imminent threat to our national security, like say Kim Jong Un, then you know then it makes more sense. But they'll but, never use but they'll never use the clandestine service f- for taking out their puppets either because the clandestine pu- the clandestine services stealthy in the way they kill people so it would make no buzz essentially so then we can have a a big thing that that's i i'm i'm big into spies and spooks and whatnot and you know i i i basically know that uh the efficient spies and whatnot that the real spies you know, don't like to make that big of a noise. And, you know, as far as I know, the military industrial complex loves to, t- loves to tout when they do something and the true clandestine service does not. So, you know, yeah, I, I, I guess, I don't know. Me and you might have a difference there. Maybe uh, well, I'm more, I would say, you know, they, you say that you're not necessarily anti-war. I would say I am because war uh, unless it's absolutely necessary, you know, unless there is an imminent threat to our national security, I'm more against it because war, as Iraq demonstrated, terrible things happen and a lot of people die that don't need to die. There yeah. And, you know, stuff like that. And uh, even in even in just wars, you know, like I, I have been a proponent of saying that, you know, for example, the strike the other night, I've heard some people say, oh, well, he sent a message to North Korea. There is no evidence that that sends a message to North Korea because when George Bush was president, when George Bush was president, there was no attempt at all by Kim Jong-il to stop the North Korean nuclear program. They have nukes today because they never stopped working on them with Bush's, you know, going in and getting rid of Saddam. And this nonsensical idea that that launching a strike on Syria's on, on a Syrian airfield is going to make North Korea cut the shit out. It, it's just not realistic. You know, well, at that point I would say to them, well, look, if North Korea is the real threat, then why the hell didn't you go after North Korea? Easy. There's no real corporate interest or a special elite interest in getting rid of the uh, North Korean uh, regime that is actively building nuclear weapons that could be used to attack us. There, There is no corporate yeah. interest there like there is in Syria where I explain list by list all the things they want to do that's why the priority is on regime change in Syria yeah. and not getting ready to to tell North Korea hey look you need to stop building uh, the nuclear weapons that and using them to threaten your neighbors you know that's you you can see the difference I think yeah I, I, do, I definitely can um, you know so well uh anyway Josh, thank you for coming on the show and uh well uh I guess where can we can we find you and, and whatnot on social media? Uh I am on Twitter at jjohnson underscore aw and uh you can follow me on Facebook if you'd like. I don't make all of my posts public, but there is occasionally a public post, and that's just a Joshua Johnson. Um American Watchman, I'm on there. I share all my American Watchman articles Medium. Uh, again, that's at J Johnson AW on Medium. Uh, the Deplorable Podcast on Spreaker and YouTube. Um, 
I'm going to try and get onto iHeartRadio. I haven't really figured out. I know that I can put episodes out on there, but I'm not figured out yet if I have to sign up first before Spreaker will automatically you do. share my stuff on there, how that works. So, and, and I think you said I do, so we'll have to set that up, and then it'll be I, on there too. I can I can walk you that's, through how, how to do that after the show, but uh, that's anyway. uh, and I should say the the deplorable podcast is every Sunday afternoon live at uh, five central, and if if you can't catch it live, which I'm sure most of my listeners do not, then you know obviously you can listen to it after the fact uh, on Spreaker and YouTube and all those other places, but. All right. Well, thank you for joining me once again, sir. And folks, we will be back with another episode this week. And uh, we have a big announcement coming in uh, just a couple of days because pretty soon, folks, uh, like a couple of you have been requesting, I am going to go daily. But there is going to be a caveat with the daily show. It won't be as long as kind of my long form crossfire episode. So, Stay tuned for announcements regarding that. Um, in the meantime, I want to thank you for watching, and I want to thank Josh for coming on the show. So uh, we will see you guys on the next episode, and until then, God bless and God save this great nation. Thank you for watching and or listening.